welcome back to the fourth and final season of RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Gabby. Hello, Gabby. Hello, Brendan. Hello, Fly Guys and friends. Our guest today is a former critic for RogerEbert.com, Salt Lake City Weekly, and The Village Voice. He is also a current friend of the show and returning guest, having previously appeared on this program to discuss season one's Which Side Are You On? We are pleased to welcome back Danny Bowes to the Roycast. Hello, Danny. Hello, Brennan. Hello, Gabby. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Oh, my God. When was that? That was 2019 that we recorded that episode, right? Spring, yeah, it was summer. the before yeah. times, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> In yeah. every way, before times. Yeah. Oh, a different man. world. We were talking a little bit before uh, we started this recording about how you know, the old days when it felt like there were 12 people watching Succession and, you know, a quarter of us were recording podcasts about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course, we've transitioned into this era where it's uh, the biggest thing going and uh, we're and now we're, we're coming towards the end of it. Uh, we've got uh, only four episodes left after this week. We're here to discuss uh, mm. season four, episode six. It's, uh, it's Living Plus. They're packing it in. I mean, these episodes, there's there's so much going on. I don't know how anybody can just like watch it once and and retain everything. It's it's like firing on all cylinders. Yeah, you watch the episode exactly once and then you log online and you say, I think Greg is the mastermind, and then you log off and you don't think about the show <laughs> again for the rest of the week. <laughs> no, come on. There's 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 so much that you can miss. Like there there really is just like I mean they've they've always packed the episodes, but but this is something different. Yeah, I think it's something that we've been spared that a lot of show it just like really kind of I don't want to say poisons, but like you know in that direction, you know, kind of like interferes with the experience of enjoying a lot of uh you know like big popular TV shows. Everybody would just like you know their fan theories like you know connecting the yarn like the always sunny uh Philadelphia you know uh, mean um yeah. or just like <laughs> like so and so is like the the time traveling you know like identical twin of this one and you're just like and it just has nothing to do with anything and it, you just sort of sitting there just can't you just watch the fucking show and that's one of the good things about succession is that it's like there isn't really they don't really leave room for you know like speculation because it's like you know i was never really all that invested personally in like oh who takes over the company it's like what do i care they're all yeah. awful you know it's like <laughs> it, it, you know it's like you, you can't root for anybody because they all suck you, you know it's like because there isn't it, you know kind of takes rooting out of it you just you just watch the show and it's like that's refreshing that you don't have to you know like you know like it catch easter eggs or references or something you know it's just, it's just very straightforwardly and elegantly is what it is and that's been the thing that i've been uh, enjoying the most about it all these all they, this time. they tell you what they need to tell you and yet you still end up surprised you know it's uh it's know. it's, it's very, a very you know, brilliant uh writing approach and yeah i mean um <laughs> i was reading an article with uh an interview with peter friedman and and David Rashi, I just finally learned how to pronounce his last name because I was listening to Jay Smith Cameron on Mark Marin and she said it. And I was like, oh, okay. I feel so weird. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how I've been saying this last name just like rash. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, you know, of course, the, the, the interviewer asks them, um, you know, what can you tell us about the end that won't get you in trouble? And Peter Friedman goes, they're showing you that whoever wins will be sorry. You've been watching this for years, and it's clear there's no upside to winning in succession. What's the upside? A yacht with miserable people. These people are always unhappy. No matter what they have, they're always unhappy. So take from that what you will. So, 
you know, uh, these, they, they that get rules. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great now that we're we're coming down the pike, and where you can kind of see this is the episode where I think, for me at least, I can start to see the outlines of where this is going. Like I have, I'm starting to get like a fuzzy picture of of where this is going. We'll get into this a little bit, um, but yeah, we should start unpacking this episode because. Uh, yeah, of course, as usual, there is, there's a ton to talk about. So the usual plot rundown of Season 4, Episode 6, Living Plus. In this episode, the ensemble visit Los Angeles for an investors meeting that will also launch Living Plus, the Waystar real estate resort slash retirement home venture that Logan had put into motion before his death. After Shiv calls out Roman and Kendall for attempting to sow doubt about Matson with the C-suite, Kendall plans to juice the projections for Living Plus in his presentation, boosting Waystar's valuation above the 192 a share that Matson can offer. Roman has disastrous meetings, first with studio executive Joy Palmer and then with Jerry, impulsively telling both women that they're fired before pulling out of the presentation and leaving Kendall to make his pitch alone. Meanwhile, Shiv and Tom reestablish their sexual relationship and she brings him into her calls with Matson who wants to kill Living Plus before the expo. Kendall makes his pitch successfully with an assist from doctored footage of Logan, seeming to bolster his revenue projections, and manages to position himself as level-headed when Matson makes an offensive tweet about the deal. As Kendall returns to the green room victorious, Matson deletes the tweet and Roman slips out quietly, sinking further into depression. So as we outlined at the beginning there, like I said, there's you can start to see a little bit of the, the threads of the endgame coming together, right? Like Kendall ends this episode in a, in a victorious position, right? Which we've got four episodes to go, so we know that's not going to last. And, you know, Roman is in this uh, total funk. He's, he's, he's now the, the facade that we had seen of him having pre-grieved or him handling his grief is totally gone. And he's really in this dark, dour mood and, uh, and just withdrawing completely from himself. Uh, there's also this sort of newly formed or reforged alliance between Shiv and Tom who seem to be on the same page, um, maybe in a way that they haven't been for the entire series. And uh, again, there's plenty of time for the show to kind of explode all of that. But I mean, the thing that I loved so much about this episode and what kind of kicked it up to that top tier of my favorite hours of this show is just the central concept of living plus that the show explores you know as a as a metaphor the idea of living plus is this extension of the idea of the cage or the trap that recurs throughout the whole series um and it's integrated here with the season's focus on the roy family trauma manifesting itself in wider political reaction and retrenchment um, we'll come back to Matson a bit later but he's the one who calls the idea land cruises invoking the sense of a place that you're trapped in for your stay, and he calls it heartbreaking, comparing it to a prison. I'm curious about your thoughts, Danny. What did you think of the the uh, the unveiling of this living plus idea, which which came out of kind of left field for the show a little bit, right? Because it is uh, in in a way, it seems like such an odd thing for this sort of media company to get into, right? It it, it does. It, you know, it's like we were um, discussing before we started recording. We were talking about like how. You know, it's like it, um, you know, like the show consistently, like it manages to, you know, kind of surprise you, but then you realize it's kind of inevitable at the, at the same time that it's like, because when they, yeah, because like when you, uh, you know, saying they bring it up, I was like, huh, this is, 
And then it's suddenly in the sudden moment of clarity. And it was like watching Kendall there, like on the stage, like, you know, just, you know, sort of babbling incoherently about like what he was, you know, you know his, his vision for the thing. And I was like, of course, he's interested in eternal life. His father just died. He can't comprehend the concept of mortality. Right. And he's just looking like yeah. all of these rich tech guys nowadays to just like brush aside the very concept of dying. And, and at that, at that, that was the moment where I was just like, yeah, this, this episode is the good stuff because it's like it, the show consistently, you know, manages to make its points without explicitly spelling everything out. It just sort of like lays it out there and lets you just, just appreciate it. And it, it was just, just kind of stunning and uh, i mean more than uh, like you know anything that's done in a while it's like really kind of just like really captures in perfect crystalline form how empty the roy's you know like vision of the world is and how just silly the idea that you can cheat death is but they're just all in like kendall in particular is just all in on this idea that it's like oh yeah my dad died but i never have to worry about that <laughs> well, and it's well, and it's selling that yeah. idea to other people too, yeah. right? Because yeah, like the yeah. fantasy that they're selling, like one of the things that's so weird and eerie about Living Plus, because the the concept here basically, the 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 uncanniest thing about this is that after the show, you go online to sort of start talking about it and research things. You find this is a real thing that mm -hmm. like the Walt Disney Corporation, for example, is working on doing. There are. They're in the planning stages of a project called Story Living. You can look this up, uh, where there will be these planned communities that people can, I guess, retire to. Or I guess you don't have to be a retiree, but that's certainly who it seems pitched at. You know, and you can live in these planned communities in California, and you can have these sort of integrated, what, is, what does Kendall say, integrated like IP life experiences with the Disney characters and all this stuff. And you'll have like Disney Parks level service. And, you know... For Disney, that kind of makes sense in a way, or like there seems like there's a sentimental appeal because you do have a real, uh, very engaged, very passionate consumer base there where people have real attachment to these characters and these narratives, all these films and stuff. Uh, with Waystar, it's like, I guess in universe, that's meant to be the case. There's meant to be people who are really passionate about, you know, like Doderick and Friends or whatever their, their movies are, but like we see these things from the outside as people who have no connection to them and they look so low rent and cheap and gaudy and uncanny. So we can't imagine the idea of having a connection to like Doderick or like wanting to like live in Waystar. And so I think the intuitive connection you make as a viewer is just that they're selling the idea of being a Roy and living this sort of like disconnected frictionless lifestyle of a Roy, which as we've seen as viewers through the previous seasons is so hollow at its core. Yeah, there's that like uber menacing line about uh you'll you'll have your keys but you won't need them. Um yeah, there's like this whole air of of uh you know creepy insularity and and surveillance and then like the integration of the health stuff and Kendall calls them extension therapies. Um you know, it's it's not only like uh hollow, it's it's very dark. Um you know, this is real people's lives. This isn't just like, uh, you know, numbers for Gojo. Uh, and and uh, it's 
um, you know, it, it did kind of come out of nowhere, but it, it makes sense, you know, as we've been talking, like, we expected some sort of like a real world harm to to resurface or to or to surface for the first time. And, and you know, we've been talking about it, how it has to, you know, come back to that because, you know, Kendall's accident is over. The cruise's incident was over. We sort of just been coasting on the like family drama for a while. Um, the business stuff, you know, we analyze it, of course, but it's more just, uh, you know, how it relates to the Roy's and, and, and drives their behavior. But, um, yeah, this, this, this for me was, this was hard to stomach. Um, especially knowing that it's real thing, right? Like we, like, I think what you're talking about, Gab, is you're, you're talking a little bit about like this sort of like political themes of the season which they keep they keep laying the stuff in they keep laying all this all the threads about atn right we kept we kept thinking it's going to be atn the election which you know still very much in the cards but but this kind of came up and you're like whoa i was i I was um you know it made me wonder if i could actually watch just a show about free free freewheeling waystar itself because um (laughs) you know ideas like this are literally so painful you know i i worked for a while in affordable housing development anti-homelessness programming in new york and you know, I know that I- ideas like this aren't aren't fantasies of the show's writer, as Brendan was just saying. You know, the Disney Corporation has something like this planned. Um, and you know, housing, especially for for vulnerable populations like seniors, it's, it's you know, it's not a game. And so, you know, imagining a company like Waystar helming this project is very galling to me. I mean, aside from just like how creepy it all feels with the you know the characters and and uh life enhancement ip like people will get hurt like so now we're gonna start letting the guys whose cruise company policy was to literally throw people overboard um in unfavorable situations be your grandma's landlord like what you know what could go wrong it's it's uh but yeah but there, there are companies that will do this and tell themselves that they're good guys and angel investors who will fall for it and hedge fund douchebags who will help fund it and, uh, you know, corners will be cut, innocent people will be hurt so that, you know, those aforementioned people can squeeze every last penny they can from this, you know, disgusting project. And yeah, it reminded me a little bit of Logan in, in, in the season premiere talking about people as markets. Um, you know, you can see how that philosophy rationalizes a project like this. You know, it's just really capitalism <laughs> at its worst, late stage completely dehumanizing and you know well i mean the the, the straight the, the straightforward business case for this is it, i i think it is gabby as you're talking about it's premised on something that is very that is a grim reality of the sort of contemporary american economy which is that in a economy where people have ever shrinking amounts of discretionary income to spend on things like parks etc you kind of have to go after people who have managed to save for end of life care and things like that right which is the case for going after people's retirement savings and offering, you know, right. this kind of product, this kind of service, quote unquote. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's, all... there's a huge, you know, aging boomer population that, you know, needs places to live and to go. Not not everybody's kids are going to want to take care of them. Not everybody has kids. It's actually a huge crisis. Uh, um, you know, I mean, we already are in a national affordable housing crisis. You know, you could have maybe said before the pandemic that, you know there were still some affordable cities left but um there aren't and and uh you know there are predators who are going to take advantage of this situation and that's the generation that's the last one with any money at all mm-hmm. right. is the, is the boomers <laughs> enough like they uh, somebody was like they have something like two-thirds of the wealth in this country is concentrated in the boomer generation and up i mean and it's like 
that's where I, you know the dystopian thing it's like who's the last people we can bleed it's the oldsters and it's like because they're the only ones who have any fucking money <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, we think yeah. about the kind of company that Waystar is. It's, of course, our analog for, for Fox, for News Corp, uh, for Fox News. And there is this thread of paranoia and reactionary sentiment running through Kendall's pitch here. Uh, you know, the unstated uh, sort of selling point here is that, as Gabby's talking about, you know, these these boomers being the, uh, the, the target demo here. It's not even the boomers necessarily, too. It's, you know, it's Gen X is getting towards retirement age as well, but the fact that Waystar is this company that capitalizes on these social and generational alienation and these divisions in society that they help to deepen, I thought was very pointed that Kendall, for example, called the idea of living plus a sanctuary, which is such a loaded term that evokes all these fears about immigration and, you know, city life um, that the ATN viewers, we can presume, have you know, inducing the numbers with these ideas about, you know, data harvesting and life extension therapies to further prey on paranoia, fear of death and illness, and of course, you know, sort of like bilk more money out of these people who are already paying for your product, right? You know, you're putting add-on stuff on the top, little surcharges for like, oh, can I, can I offer you like a, a wafer of sort of like gene therapy or, or what have you uh, on top of the rent you're already paying? Right. On top of the rent and, and, construction you know they're gonna like i said they're gonna cut a million corners people are gonna die because you have to take really careful consideration when you're housing the elderly um and, and building housing for for them so um you know i just see this saw this for the you know disaster it was that i could see it flashing before my eyes and it, it just uh you know it was hard to like um kind of uh separate the streams for the first time in a while between like what was going on with uh the family and, and, and the company and, and me just like sitting, thinking about living plus and, and how f- fucking dystopian and depressing it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and to see Kendall so like gleeful about something that he knows is bad. Uh, you know, it, it made me miss like fake woke Kendall a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we're missing, we're missing season three Kendall. We're nostalgic for him now. Yeah. Where's uh, where's where's fuck the where's fuck the patriarchy, Kendall? Uh, I mean, uh, the, ama- amazing acting from Strong and and from Kendall himself. I just uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the but, the um, morbidity and the ghastliness of this idea is cemented by the fact that Kendall performs his double act on stage, not with Roman, his brother, but with the ghost <laughs> of his father. This manipulated video footage, and we were talking before about the characters and uh you know the the ip or whatever it is that people supposedly have a connection to in real life with disney or in the show's world with waystar uh but the mascot here is kind of logan he's the the avatar of american success right he's the guy who went out on his own terms he was uh, able to make himself comfortable through end of life and he's that's the ghost that all these people are going to be chasing right and it's the 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 way that they go about manipulating that footage of him too just like that it's so blatantly uh, you know and very loudly a lie when you go back and you see the whole thing with uh you know greg bullying that editor into uh, you know pulling a, a pulling an all-nighter to to make it look like logan's really saying the thing that he didn't say you know and it's it, you know that whole bit like you know you know 
you know, bullying the the underpaid, uh, you know, like creative tech yeah. guy, you know, you know, to <laughs> Dan, our, our producer said that this was a, a triggering moment for him. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, because it's like, I mean, I've been there, too. Like, you know, it's like I it, you know, go too deep into the details in this, but like I've uh, worked for uh, a very, a very moneyed mercurial people who demand literally impossible things and when you tell them it's impossible they just stare at you blankly being like what do you mean it's impossible i told you to do it oh we yeah well supposed i mean, to carry out the orders the <laughs> i give the orders you do the thing you don't talk back and it's like it, you know it's like i had flashbacks too because i was like oh man that was like you know it's just it's it, it, you know just you know example ten thousand of succession capturing something so vividly and agonizingly real in a little detail like that yeah i mean the the nightmare boss stuff is just all over this episode i mean i love that that greg scene where he's trying to get the underling to do what he wants but the guy like has no sense of greg as somebody that he should be intimidated by or even report to he like feels no urgency whatsoever to respond to him so greg is like trying to figure out in real time how to make this guy impressed with him or afraid of him uh which is which is which is a fun bit of sort of stammery improv but i mean there's all that stuff in the rest of the episode like the i love the the bit where kendall says here's the rule no one is allowed to say no because that's just like oh that's right. horrifying it <laughs> just know, it just horrible. chills you out and that that gesture when like he doesn't like the clouds that they come up with and he like spreads right. his arms he's like everybody needs to back away um, give me a minute yeah <laughs> Yeah. But that that Greg moment that you mentioned was the thing where it's like uh, uh, I was uh, tweeting about the other day when I was taking my notes and I just, you know like I was sort of like looking at them and it's like what is all this shit and I had the line Greg is not very good at being a cunt you know when when it's like <laughs> with him bullying the tech guy but you know so I just wanted to bring that up because it amused me. <laughs> Not very good at it on purpose. He does it sort of incidentally all the time, but when he needs to, when he needs to be scary, uh, he, he, oh, he, yeah, he's, yeah. he's sort of grasping at straws. But on top of how ghastly and dark the subtext of this episode is, you know, I still find it incredibly moving and a great showcase for Kendall's character because I think to understand the show, you do have to understand a bit how like villainous this show is this episode in particular makes him as this pitch man for this, uh, for this very dark product while also, you know, he, he has his moment of victory. He's kind of able to sell it because he does have this sort of like charismatic quality of the dreamer that I think, you know, a lot of fans connect to. And I think that in the show world, in this episode in particular, we're meant to understand that people connect to, right. He sort of has that, that force of will and vision, even if it's not backed up by much, right? Um, but he has some of that. He's got the sauce. He's got the swag. He can he can carry something like this. He's swaggy, and it doesn't hurt that he's you know in a manic upswing and totally delusional, and uh, you know uh, willing to completely lie and make stuff up in order to get this to work. So yeah, I mean, just speaking of that, and um. You know, this this whole idea of how they're going to, um, you know, outsmart Matson, the, you know, the whole unbelievable growth thing with regards to Living Plus. So so Ken says that he thinks that they can get um, a tech valuation for this, what is essentially a, a real estate proposition. 
And um, the reason he did that is because tech valuations um, are more subject to wild inflation compared to uh, boring ones like real estate. So so Kendall is saying if they can get people to, to think of Living Plus as a, as a tech product, um, they'll be able to drive stock price up and, um, you know, then Matson is screwed. And, and this whole, uh, you know, idea of, of sort of manipulating something so that it, it uh, can get a tech valuation was basically Adam Newman's WeWork model. So even though that company was, you know, bleeding cash, um, it was given a $47 billion valuation in 2019, multiples larger than it would be if it were considered a real estate company, which it basically was. Um, and, and getting the tech valuation is based on, you know, not much more than vibes and charisma and a lot of, you know, bullshitting around numbers and language, which they, you know, these people happen to be very good at. And, uh, you know, there's some parallels to, to, to Theranos, too, and Ken's speech with the, you know, the, of course, the you know, promise of living for 50 more years and, and uh, you know, billionaire health extension therapies and so forth. Yeah, no, with that, the, it, it, one of the great, like, appropriate ironies in the show is that, you know, Kendall probably has the greatest success in this episode with with any of his harebrained schemes that he's ever had in doing something that is so clearly bullshit and so manifestly evil whereas whenever he's tried to do something for like you know noble good intentions it just like cartoonishly falls apart and it's just like and it's again just like that's the world like the bigger the lie that you tell the more money Wall Street will fork over to you, you know, and it's yep, it's one of those things where it just sounds like cool. It's it, <laughs> yeah. it's so it's so fucking stupid, you know. Like again, we're, I I mean, I feel like this comes up every episode now. Now that we're dealing with like the tech world, especially, and how much of it is just based on you know, on bluster. It's like even uh uh what's his name Matt <laughs> Matson said that you know he doesn't like real estate because it's not scalable. Um, very very tech guy thing to say. <laughs> Um, that, that kind of gave me a chuckle. Yeah. Just those <laughs> gut punch moments where you're just like, these are the worst fucking people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, like <laughs> we can yeah. think of, we can think of all these parallels to, you know, Theranos, to WeWork, to, to Elon Musk, you know, obviously mm. none of these are good, right? Like all these kind of ended badly. I mean, Elon Musk is kind of still in the process of, of imploding, but it's happening. There's more to talk about there. But I mean, again, just talking about you know, the underside of this, the reason it's so compelling is drama is because the show will never just do the thing of showing a character be absolutely evil for unsympathetic reasons. Not only do we understand them so well at this point in the show, but I found the whole conceit, the way that Kendall delivered this, again, monstrous idea uh, to be incredibly powerfully moving. I mean, like, there's just like a specific thing, I think, for me personally, whenever you have a character in a scene who's like building a model home Something about that just gets me. You know, the idea of characters like building a home for themselves is this dramatic idea, this concept that recurs in so many like great films and works of fiction. And, you know, I wouldn't ordinarily in any circumstances compare Succession to, to John Ford. But I mean, that famous shot of John Wayne at the end of The Searchers, right, of standing on a threshold and not being able to enter. I mean, I think one of the reasons that that shot is so famous is there is something very timeless about that idea of, you know, like uh, being able to see and to imagine the ideal for yourself and like something holding you back. And the show takes that concept that I think is so universally understood 
and loads it with so much meaning that is specific to these characters and also that eerie real world documentary level detail it makes this one of the episodes that for me completely smashes the show's insularity um i mean we can also think of just in tv terms you know for a slightly less highbrow reference i also thought of the second episode of the oc i don't know if you guys remember this one the titled the model home um which you know uh it it plays it plays with similar ideas similar dramatic ideas and you know the I was just thinking about those those Josh Schwartz shows, you know, the OC, the original Gossip Girl, uh, very silly, goofy primetime soap stuff. But I mean, Josh Schwartz, you know, smart guy, um, and uh, you could learn a lot about TV writing from those. Honestly, I mean, it made me think of the Arrested Development model homes. Now that, now that you say <laughs> that, it, and that like too, the, of course, yeah, 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 and like somebody like knocking on uh, the wall, and then like a picture that that's framed on the other side of the room like falls down <laughs> just like <laughs> absolutely like horrible shitty poor quality taking advantage um yeah with something like housing it's 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 interesting and uh yeah the themes of home and 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 uh you know the way scafaria talks about like each one of her episodes that she's directed there's like there's a there's a home motif or theme, you know, the treehouse and too much birthday, um, the literal haunted house in in uh, the Logan Wake episode this season, and then and then this model house, um, and the model uh, yeah. house, of course, that, that that Kendall abandons. I guess it's like scrapped, or they just like leave it backstage somewhere. These all these poor suckers worked through the night to to literally to he build loves, this for him. He, he loves and then he doesn't like the clouds, and they're done. It's the same yeah. thing. It was inevitable. As, <laughs> as soon as he asked for it, it was like, he's not even going to use this. I, I know he's not even going to use this thing. Yeah. Oh well, God. let me tell you, bringing back PTSD from my theater days, man, it was just like, that was just like, <laughs> oh, what are you doing? This is the greatest thing. It's like, it's just like, do something impossible by tomorrow. And then you do two thirds <laughs> of it and you're like, well, you're not done. So we're just going to scrap the whole thing. And it's just uh. like, just, just fucking just put a bullet in me just like it's just like dude. they did a great job too like i bet it would have looked good like the the clouds were not like fine, the yeah the picture yeah, if they had another afternoon it would have been awesome yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean how great is it that this episode comes out the week that the writer's strike uh is is, is officially on right like oh, all these motifs yeah. of like the nightmare bosses, the overwork, Hollywood, the stuff about like deep fake and yeah. like AI technology with the Logan video. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. very, very apt. Oh yeah. I mean, and it's like, you know, then probably like, I don't know, maybe the most important thing in the world to remember right now is that the super rich are the source of every single problem that we have in the, in the world and having succession, just be right there. Just being like, Oh yeah, that's true. You know, and having the writer strike be there, like, oh yeah, that's true. It's like, it's like it's getting harder to escape that universal truth. And I, for one, think that's a good thing. So do I. I mm -hmm. I think it's great. I hope that more you know, professional class people who watch this show, um, you know, start to wisen up a little bit to the fact that they are, you know, m more likely to end up on you know the side of uh striking writers and they are to become roy wealthy um mm -hmm. just uh maybe sowing the seeds of a little bit more solidarity um you know with uh hbo's target audience you know i don't know i don't know how well that's working but 
you know, they do have a like lot there's... of shows about awful rich people and a lot of people aren't really it does yeah i mean Ooh, there's a conversation to be it? had about bad rich people media and we, you know we've talked about it a little bit but but you know <laughs> and, and overall you know we can debate the merits of all, all all those programs and stuff but i think it is a net good to uh for media to be you know villainizing these people yeah it's well, sure better it? than valorizing them yeah well, exactly. I mean, it's good to have it's good to have art that's good on television. I mean, the a big reason everybody very should true be as well. paying that attention too. to what's going on with the writers' strikes <laughs> and what's probably soon to be directors' guild and screen actors' guild strikes. Is yeah, that, you know, they're gonna. Art, it's it's gonna be a long process, and you know, uh, I, art is not a frivolous thing. It's something that everybody needs to sustain themselves in any kind of healthy civilization, healthy society. Um, so I hope they soak them for everything they're worth. Hell yeah! Um, and while yeah, it's we're wild on... to think of Waste Waystar eventually getting does Waystar produce TV shows? Have we ever learned that? Or I would assume so. I mean, like they have like a they have the movie Probably. studios. I mean, yeah. like they're they're shooting on the Warner Brothers lot. If we're thinking of them on this level, all these other companies are involved in TV production, right? Um, while we're on the yeah. subject of Hollywood, we'll talk a bit more about it. Um, one of the great sort of uh, parallels and echoes, and this is that. Uh, in that uh, great Vulture interview that Jeremy Strong did with Matt Zeller Seitz this week, he described the sort of flight jackets, which it was actually Strong's oh idea to have the flight jackets <laughs> made with the shoulder patches, with the ATN patches and stuff, because he, he, I think it was inspired by something he saw Elon Musk wear, but he also compared it to like a Tom Cruise and Top Gun thing. And I was like, oh my God, Kendall is Tom Cruise. How apt is that? Like the total death drive. I mean, like the just, just like psychopathic self-regard. Uh, it's 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 great. I, I love that idea. Yeah, Jeremy Strong. I I would give my life for him at this point. I mean, he is the the <laughs> the greatest fucking no chill theater kid who is he he is the Alexander the Great of no chill theater kids. Fucking, I mean, I could if you don't cut my mic, I will go on for three fucking hours about how much I love that man. Yeah, <laughs> it was that a great was interview. Great. Em embrace the cringe, yeah. I was oh, I was yeah. very touched by that interview. I mean, you know, Seitz is obviously somebody who can go toe to toe with him for his, you know, literary and theatrical references. And you know, oh, I, yeah. I, I, strong. I think Strong does take up a lot of oxygen, where a lot of around the discourse around the show, where like the other actors are equally worth talking about. And of course, in the press for this show, they're now interviewing like literally everybody who has even a single line on the show is getting like a GQ cover profile about them, uh, which I'm fine with because all those interviews are fascinating. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, but I but I do like the sort of parallel narrative in the media of Strong, you know, becoming more comfortable expressing himself and talking about this stuff in a press context because they're they're great conversations when you get him going. His process would be insufferable if he didn't get such like stunning results. Like so many of the moments <laughs> that you get where there is an emotion that is so vividly rendered on that face that it it's all worth it. The, the, all of the things that, that that he's done it's like yeah it's irritating to act with somebody like that sometime but it's like you do at a certain point need to give it up to them when the results are this good and i think it's even you know like brian cox who there were all of those you know sort of like subliminal kind of subtweety complaints about you know like the tension between the two of them but it's like when he saw the dailies he was like yeah it fucking worked eh, what are you gonna do yeah um so but th that's the other thing. I mean, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I mean, the one of the other great you know joys of this show is the 
range of performance styles in the ensemble cast and how yeah, yeah. all of them have been getting to cook for four seasons now. They all have it just down. And so it's like on yeah. any given episode, you can see seven or eight radically disparate performance styles all humming like a fucking orchestra. And it's just like, you know, as an actor myself, watching people do the thing that well, it's like, it's like, you know, being at the, the symphony hall, watching the orchestra, you know, just like do the thing. It's just like, it's, uh, it's uh, it makes me inarticulate. I like it so much, you know, it's just like. <laughs> well, they are a company, you know, they're, they're that's how yeah. they refer to themselves and think, think of themselves and, and, and informs so many ways that the show is, is developed and, and, uh, you know, ultimately what we see. So. Yeah. I mean, I have in my notes from this, from this episode, just like, even the characters that don't have much to say in this episode. But, you know, again, we have, like, Degmara Dimitrik as Carolina just, like, doing amazingly funny facial work in this episode. Very colorful with her expressions. Mm-hmm. She's she's you know, she's just in the background, but she's cooking, you know? She's cooking with gas. Yeah. Um, to, to keep moving through the, in plot terms, uh, the episode, there's, uh, you know, because, again, we're talking about this episode really starting to you know play some of the the cards the season has been holding back and some of these uh these plot end game pieces falling into place uh the sort of bad tweet development with uh with lucas matson i thought this was so smart as a development as a way to show kendall getting the upper hand over this guy because this was part of his character that matson's character that's been established since he first appeared in season three, uh, that he was kind of an edge lord, uh, that he had the impulsive tweeting thing, you know, kind of similar to Roman in a way, you know, the way he's initially set up in, in Too Much Birthday, um, you know, and he sends yeah. this tweet during Kendall's presentation that says, uh, Doderick macht frei, which is the reference to the, for those who didn't look this up, it's a reference to the, the slogan, work will set you free, that was on the entrance of Auschwitz and other concentration camps in the Holocaust. Uh, so drawing this parallel that, you know, perhaps not totally unearned as we've kind of teased out, uh, between this concept and, you know, uh, to, to concentration camps, uh, to death camps. Um, but, uh, but he goes too far, obviously Matson does with this. And I think what the episode does with that, that first scene where Matson is on the plane sort of conferring with Shiv and trying to talk her out of living plus, can you kill it somehow? They demonstrate in that scene, the thing they set up there, I think very smartly is the cultural differences where Matson, being this Scandinavian, he doesn't have the sort of like cultural context for why this idea is actually appealing. Like he gets that it's depressing. Like he kind of gets superficially, you know, some of the stuff that we're talking about, but he doesn't understand the sort of libidinal thing that this is, that Waystar is tapping into with this. He doesn't understand the sort of sales pitch and the appeal this has to the particular kind of Waystar ATN audience you know in the last episode kendall was talking about i don't he think he doesn't you understand, understand americans yeah what you're buying yeah. he, i don't think you understand atn and i think that's exactly mm-hmm. what this plot is about that's why matson sort of misjudges this and it's a great uh it's a great opportunity for kendall it plays perfectly into his hands because he's often been the person who seems erratic like a rogue agent like a wild card in this episode he seems that way but on stage he gets to play the adult to Matson, you know, all of a sudden Matson looks impulsive and he looks out of control and he looks like the big risk 
And Kendall gets to play. He's like, well, you know, that's that's social media toxicity. And we're offering an alternative to that. You know, we're offering a better version of social media in real life. You know, all of a sudden he seems like mature. Yeah. He does. He does answer with maturity and eloquence, but it is very funny when he says, "Well, he's European." <laughs> I love the, yeah. the the continual thread on this show. <laughs> you know, Europe, Europe being just like wildly anti-Semitic. It's very funny. Um, yeah, but like, I I don't think Madsen gets Americans at all, or you know, our you know the the American ethos that would you know lead to some something like you know, ATN uh, or Fox News becoming as popular as it is. You know, it, it seems to confound him. Um, you know, well, he and it's, it, like news for news for old people doesn't work. And he says right. to Shiv, you know, there there are rooms of Waystar that I never want to go into, you know. So, so the cultural tensions are there. And, you know, I think it's, it's going to continue to rear its head. Um, yeah, some of this stuff is really radioactive to outsiders, you know, even to not particularly sympathetic people. Right. And the thing about introducing that aspect of Matson, like his like introducing a limitation that he has of, you know, like like you're saying, like him not getting America, because like, you know, in the episode when they were in Norway, when he was more or less or, or closer to home turf than he is here. And he seems like all, you know, like sophisticated and in control and European and worldly and everything. But it's like showing that he is just as close at every moment to blowing it as the Roy kids are make very quietly and eloquently makes a larger point about the entire capitalist yes. ruling class of the world. It's like, no matter it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, you might seem more urbane and sophisticated, but it's like, you're still just as impulsive and unshackled. Yeah, interested. And, yeah. 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 And it's like, you're, like they're all pieces of shit you know it's like there's no halcyon place in the world where it's like oh yeah the the you know the ruling class with all the money oh they're more sophisticated yeah, could, and they're better here it's like no they all suck right and and it's you can put a, a, a veneer on it just like the pierces put a veneer on their you know uh yeah and again yeah the pierces are a great example of that too yeah the live billion family are just as piece of shit as the right wing billionaire family yeah and it's exactly, like yeah. the, the the success of succession is the fact that these are all points that it's very easy to make in a very, you know, heavy handed, you know, ham fisted kind of way that, you know, makes an audience just sort of like roll and roll their eyes and be like, yeah, all right, I get it. Jesus Christ. But like succession never has those moments like it never overplays the hand and it always has just that sharpness and precision of like you have the realization after the moment is over because they never come right out and tell it to you. They just, it's just there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, and the we never lose sight of, of the characters also. Yeah. And that's oh, yeah. exactly yeah. it. That's the benefit of psychologizing these sort of social critiques in this way where the show, as you say, Danny, it doesn't present this stuff in a sort of PowerPoint, you know, like explainer, here's what's wrong with, you know, late stage capitalism, yada, yada, yada. Um, no Margot Robbie in a, in a tub telling you. Uh... <laughs> because actually it's more effective. And this is what we've talked before is the satirical design of the show is to come at it from the inside out and actually get you to feel for these people a bit. So by the point in season four, where you're this invested in Kendall and you see him start to swallow his own bullshit, you see him start to really believe in this messianic way, the poison that he's selling back to people. 
you're like, okay, now I get it. I get where this comes from. It, it's a much deeper yeah. understanding in that way because you can feel for these people who are starting to believe this junk. It's weaponizing the whole idea of people going into shows wanting to have relatable characters. And it's like, oh, you want to relate to some characters? <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you know, yeah. Gabby, you were you were talking a little bit about the uh, uh, <laughs> the the pitch that that Kendall makes to the C suite in the, in that initial scene where he's starting to he's trying to sow some doubts about Matson, right? Like that was a very funny bit too, where he's saying like there's it these tweets funny, and drug yeah. rumors. Right. Yeah. Like I don't think he seems to even notice the irony. Like how long ago was it, Ken, that you were uh, you know <laughs> doing lines in the bathroom and you know puffing on your meth pipe like do you really want to go there but that whole scene was very funny um with with canon roman trying to like make this fake case uh about matson being you know too much of a loose cannon to trust and then in turn the c-suite just like um you know what do you call this do you call this dramatic irony that they don't you know really know what the, what they were trying to do in this moment um but yeah, their responses bit, right? are very their their mm-hmm. responses are yeah. very funny. They're like, well, that's you know, you know the I think Jerry says that you know his reputation is priced in. Tom says that it adds to his mystique. Uh, <laughs> you know, Carl's like, well, you know the the banks are uh, you know his his bank is being very professional. It's all going through accordingly. Um, yeah, so it, it's kind of funny this this uh this sort of dumb and dumber with uh Kendall and Roman, and you know it's so different from those meetings with logan if if logan was operating a meeting like that you know there wouldn't be all this miscommunication and nobody you know really understanding each other and uh yeah there's definitely you know they're not their dad um you know they're not good at this and, and shiv shiv calls them out and she says boys you're not good at this truer words perhaps never spoken one of the things that the show is setting up in terms of its end game with kendall is that at, by the end of this episode he's left him he's he's at this moment of triumph but he's also left himself like completely open to all these criminal and regulatory issues with this pitch. Like this is very far, like, you know, a field of what's, you know, kosher and sort of SEC regulatory terms, the way he is trying to manipulate the stock here to get it to a price that Matson can't acquire them at. By the way, they, they, they slip that bit in where they say like, Oh, Telus says he, he can't go above 192. We got a Telus mention. Yeah. I want to see Telus again. Bring Telus back. Where's Telly? <laughs> Telly Savalas. But uh, but we want to talk about the Roman stuff too, the sort of fall of of Rome plotline here, because, you know, in the last episode, there was that sort of simmering tension beneath the surface of like, is Rome okay? And then by the end of the episode, you find out, no, he's not. He's got all this, he's got all this (laughs) anger. He's got all this anger that's ready to boil over. And in this episode, we find that like that didn't just like blow off the steam. It was just the beginning. He's continuing to kind of unravel and blow up at anybody who suggests that he can't do it. Because that, of course, we know that's the thing that terrifies Roman is the idea that he's not good enough has always been the thing. And so he has these these two scenes with these powerful women in his company, with Joy Palmer, the Annabeth Gish character, with Jerry. And in both of these scenes there are moments where he's sort of asking them to say, you know, just tell me I'm good. He almost says that to Jerry explicitly. Like, can you just, can you just, can you believe that I'm as good as my dad? And neither, and they both decline to do it. They both very pointedly decline to affirm him. And he reacts with such hostility and hatred. I mean, like, I love like the way that Culkin acts these scenes. Like you see it in particular, there's like a shot of him in profile 
where he says to Joy, I could just fire you. That absolutely vacant, dead, hateful stare that he gets is yeah. is, is so good. It's a, it's a Roman expression we've only seen a couple of times. You get it a lot, yeah. It's scary, yeah. Because you think of him as being the funny, cute one, and it's like, this episode was the much-needed antipode to the funny, cute Rome, because he ain't funny and he ain't cute. You know, it's like that yeah. fucking fetishistic <laughs> thing about firing people that all these rich assholes have, and it's like just flashing it like that, like a sword. It's just like, god damn. You know, this is like, unpleasant. Yeah, I think, I think necessary, he though. feels... Yeah. yeah, he feels... uh very very condescended to by joy i think um even though she's not i don't think she really means to be condescending does she but she like you know, she's she, trying to be helpful the groucho, yeah the groucho marx thing and he doesn't know what she's talking about inside cinema and you know he he can sense that like what you're you think you're fucking smarter than me you know and and he he, he is like regressing into this little uh you know once again this this angry little boy um you know whose mommy isn't telling him that he's good enough or smart enough and uh you know then it happens again with jerry obviously in a much more you know explosive and emotional way because he's got you know this whole emotional background uh with jerry but yeah what, what did you uh I, I know you've been really excited about the annabeth gish appearance brendan so even though it was brief you enjoyed <laughs> it, it was brief annabeth gish is yeah she's a personal <laughs> favorite of mine she was great on a series i love called halt and catch fire where she also played uh, a professional woman who came into that show to really at a, in a position of power uh, to sort of like whip the other characters into shape. And she has uh, a great amount, I think, of kind of old Hollywood glamour and class and poise about her uh, that the character is very much meant to evoke. One of the subtler dynamics, I think, in this episode that's only apparent if you're paying attention throughout the whole series is that I think Roman is a bit triggered by being in Hollywood, which has often been said to be the site of his greatest professional failure. It's been implied throughout the series yeah. that he had a stint in Hollywood where he was working under Frank and he sort of flamed out spectacularly under circumstances. We're never quite, uh, you know, enlightened of, we're never given the details there. Um, but he obviously, you know, he has this affinity uh, for Hollywood, for TV. He has this kind of, as we've joked about before, there is this thread of uh, failed Hollywood guys who become reactionaries. Uh, and that's kind of the archetype that, yeah. that Roman fits. Um, in the early on in this series, you know, uh, to talk about the way that this show psychologizes the satirical points it wants to make, he's introduced as a guy who's said to be sort of an alt-right troll. You know, this is the type that he's said to be, but we don't really see it with Roman, right? Like we never see him like posting or anything like that. And he doesn't talk too much about politics. He just generally seems like somebody who right. uh, is fond of verbal abuse. Um, and actually, you know, beginning in season two, we start to feel quite deeply for him and we feel for his sense of vulnerability. And I think the show, again, plays the long game here. So the thing, it starts to flip that switch with him here so that now that he's at this point of extreme emotional vulnerability and he's lashing out, you see that hatred manifest itself quite yeah. suddenly in a, like in a lightning bolt and you understand perfectly where it comes from you understand it completely um even as he's embodying you know you know as a, a certain sort of political archetype that we may have some familiarity with you understand exactly all his complexes why he's acting the way it is and you and you feel for him a bit even as you recognize that he's acting as his worst self yeah the worst self stuff i feel like you know it, it's they were sort of playing around with it and the um you know, picking the president episode, what it takes last season, you know, when he gets cozy with Minkin and, you know, 
then ultimately, you know, endorses him. And we don't know what's going to happen in the next few episodes, but there is an election. And um, yeah, Roman aligning himself with Mencken was definitely, um, you know, gave us a little bit of uh, a glimpse into his psyche, just uh, how, how the affinity he had for him, like kind of right away. Um, you know, so so Roman is, uh, you know, he's he's got some stuff going on. And I, I, I just think that that Logan's death really, um, you know, it's basically ruined him. I think if he had a few more years to, like, get comfortable, um, he might have been able, you know, to do some good for himself in, in the company, although, you know, it's still very tenuous, hypothetical. I, I But I do think he has the clearest head of the three of them. You know, we've talked about it over the seasons that he is, you know, probably, you know, the least delusional, but, um, it was definitely too, it's too soon for him to be striking out on his own. You know, he, I think, realizes in this episode that he can't really rely on Kendall. Kendall is a wild card. Um, you know, he tries to, uh, bring up to Kendall, um, the, you know, they have this conversation about, you know, of, of course, this whole episode is about mortality and death, but, you know, they have this conversation about how, he didn't expect dad to die so soon. And, um, you know, he says, I'm not so crazy myself about dying. And, you know, even in the first season when uh, Logan was in the coma, uh, Roman seemed to have the most, you know, discomfort with the idea of death. And, and um, yeah, you know, so he's talking to Kendall here saying, you know, that uh, he didn't see it coming with dad, which is very funny because in the Wake episode, he literally says verbatim that he saw this coming for a while. Um, you know, he, he just... <laughs> Is completely in denial in that episode. So, you know, I think he's trying to, like, maybe elicit some emotion from his brother here after sharing this and, and maybe have a moment of solidarity, but it doesn't really go that way. And then, you know, those feelings are carried into his next interaction, which is, you know, the Jerry interaction, which is uh, just so heartbreaking and probably my favorite bit of acting from J. Smith Cameron, maybe in the whole series. I don't know. That, that seizure that she takes when he's like and he says line i remember exactly how it goes but it's like i need you to i need you to think i'm as as good as my dad and she just takes that beat and just goes say it or believe it you know it's that i know that you're like you moment. almost don't want her to say it because you know he's gonna snap <laughs> but, but she's it's like the honest. way she yeah. plays that it's like that yeah. a master at work i mean and it's like and that's part of what makes that scene so fucked up is because it's like, she's like, no, I can't tell you that because it's not true. You know, it's like, you right. are not as good as, you know, it's like. He's like, that because that's what dad would have done. And she's yeah. like, well, you're not your dad, you know? And, and is that's that what dad would have done? Because it's like, he was yeah, the most reliant on Logan of the three of them. And yes. it's like, without him. Yes. He's just a. It's like he's not even lost at sea. It's like two thousand and one, where he's floating through fucking space. You know, it's like he's just. <laughs> he is just. He's fucked. All his inner meaning was like always derived from feeling, you know, close or valuable to Logan. I mean, and family in general. You know, he doesn't actually care that much about the business in its own right. But you know, it was literally beaten into him that being a good servant for dad is synonymous with you know acting in service of dad's legacy which is the company so that's why you know he he takes a lot of shit and he did the management training um you know he was the the holdout in the season three finale i mean there are so many examples of yeah of you know roman was secretly talking to dad throughout the three months uh 
where they were supposedly having no contact, all the siblings, you know, he, he doesn't also really have, like, intrinsic motivations like his siblings, for better or worse. Um, it's not a bad thing, but, like, without Logan's directives and, you know, his, his feedback, he, he is a, a dog without its person, which is exactly what he called Colin at the wake. Again, like, Roman just projecting so much in the immediate aftermath of Logan's death. You know, it's also the nature of, of Logan's death itself and the events surrounding it really compounding his grief. You know, there was no real goodbye. There's still the voicemail question, the boat chaos. You know, um, you know, he's he's in true shock. And, and keep in mind that Roman is the only one who went to see his father's dead body um, at the airport. <laughs> he also got that picture from Connor on his phone last last episode. Um, and there's a real demeanor shift here, you know, like the, the Romans number one defense mechanism is humor. And, you know, it's sort of blunted here. The light has gone from his eyes. He's very anxious. He's impulsive. You know, he's the sad boy now. He's acting out. He doesn't have anybody um, to punish him. And, and it, it's funny because after he has the scene of firing um, Joy and then firing Jerry, he goes to Kendall and tells Kendall and he kind of is like, I'm, you know, I might need you to help me, you know undo this i kind of snapped and kendall you know in his manic state is like fuck it you know like good job bro and i think um that was hard for roman i think roman is used to going to dad in that situation getting berated you know that's that's what he's used to these are these are kids who who grew up with abuse and so he doesn't know how to you know exist in this world without without logan he doesn't know and he 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 can't regulate his behavior, his emotions. It's 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 all very, very heartbreaking to see. Yeah, I mean, we're still adding to the Kieran Culkin highlight reel, of course. But I mean, this episode has, in addition to the moments we've already described, some of my favorite ever beats of his, uh, in particular in that scene you're talking about, which is so funny in addition to being very haunting. Uh, because that has some of the best Kendall lines where he's like just walking over to the vending machine and going, the ball is looking fat, bro. I can see everything. Uh, just like staring at this very depressing vending, California vending machine full of skinny pop. Uh, but there's that beat where, where Roman says, you know, I might need you to help me undo this. And there's a, and he's just like, he's, he's looking away and then he just like shifts his eyes over to look at Kendall, almost like, like, like a look a dog gives you when he looks over to his, to the side suddenly, cause he's worried. You know, that analogy of like a dog without his person now has me thinking of Roman as Freddy Quell and the master. <laughs> yeah. I, again, like somebody in search of a father figure to tell him what to do. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a thing. Yeah. And as opposed to, as opposed to Kendall, as opposed to his big bro, you know, this episode kind of demonstrated for me conclusively that Roman doesn't have the swag. He has no sauce. He has no juice. He does the one thing you kind of can't do as a leader in one of these companies, which is he hides. He hides from his bad decisions. Um, he doesn't, like, Jerry is kind of... bailed out, yeah. Yeah, Jerry is... Well, he's, like, that's what he's always counted on Jerry for, right? And part of her anger in that scene is, mm -hmm. like, in her, and when she says, you're not Logan, part of what she's saying there is, like, your dad might have made this very cruel, vindictive decision because he was cruel and vindictive. That's where you get this from. But he would have handled it better. He would have been smarter about it. He yeah. knew how to protect himself. He wouldn't have just fired joy on the spot and given her this ammunition in a legal battle um he would have you know he would have you know smiled and nodded yeah. and then he would have farmed the dirty work off to somebody else who could make a plan exactly. where he wouldn't be implicated in this she's reminding him that it's possible for him to actually make mistakes that she can't clean up you know part that's part of right. what it means to have all this power to, you know to have the machine gun in your hand you know you kind of have to deal with the consequences and, uh, and Roman's just incapable of doing that. You know, it's so telling 
that in that scene where, you know, after that scene where Shiv comes to Roman and says, oh, you know, maybe we should stop Kendall from doing this. He has these harebrained schemes. He doesn't really try that hard to talk Kendall out of it. And he also doesn't back him up. He just bails. He bails and he goes to hide in the green room and sit there hugging a couch cushion while he watches whatever Kendall's going to do. Um, and then when Kendall has his moment of triumph, it's, uh, it's another knife in the gut for Roman because it's another bit of proof that, you know, he made the wrong call. He didn't back, he should have backed up Kendall because Kendall was right. There was no way for him to know that. Uh, but he chose wrong again. And, uh, he's, and he's kind of frozen out because everybody in that room saw that Kendall got the glory. He got the applause. And uh, now he looks like the dominant one, you know, co-CEO or not. You know, he's, a, he's the, the number one boy. He scratches the number one in the sand at the end. And, uh, and Roman's not. No, he's not cut out for this. He, he, he just, he can't exist in this world without dad. Um, you know, and especially, you know, now, now with Jerry and, and the fracture there. It's, um, you know, it's not looking good. <laughs> that final, final bit with the, again, the, the, the deep fake that, Kendall creates, I think, you know, as a joke, right? He's not trying to be particularly mean. It's, you know, he's just being brotherly. Yeah, uh, yeah. What is it? Um, and then, you know, Roman is listening to it on a loop. Again, he just, uh, you know, it's uh, children who are abused and, and don't resolve it, um, you know, will keep seeking out, um, you know, that kind of pain and beratement. And, you know, that, that sort of goes a little bit also into, uh, <coughs> Shiv and Tom's dynamic and and what's going on between the two of them. Yeah, wow. Maybe the best Shiv and Tom episode ever. I mean, just uh, oh yeah, some of the the, be- some of the best scenes in their entire relationship. I mean, you know, again, the actors know each other so well, and this episode is all about them reestablishing their sexual connection, their romantic chemistry. And you really feel it between these actors. There, there is like a real sort of sexy spark to those scenes between them, especially that scene where at the beginning where Tom finds her, you know, where she's scheduled her grief. She's scheduled a 20 minute interval where she can just cry <laughs> quietly with an, with an iPhone timer going uh, and, until, until she has to go back to work. And he finds her there and they have, again, you know, there, there's still that sort of undercurrent of like, you know, this is Tom's move. He finds her when she's at her most vulnerable and swoops in and they start making out. But it's but it also feels like a connection it, 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 because, you know, she follows up on it. Well, this is the first time ever on the show that I ever got the sense of them as being two people who have ever fucked. Because the, the way they're introduced <laughs> is like he's a social climber and she's like, well, I need a husband for appearances sake. And that was basically like what their dynamic was. And then they got divorced and I was like, all right, well, you know, but and but this there was this spark between the two of them in this episode that was like, it was, it, it was, was pretty it, electric. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and it didn't feel out of nowhere. It didn't feel like a contradiction of what came before. It felt like this is the evolution of what came before. And it's like, they might just be one of those couples that like did just fights all the time, which is, you know, completely foreign to me, yeah. but it's like, you see it all the time. Um, <laughs> And the two of them just may be one of those couples that needs to go through some shit to really get to the fullest realization of what they are as a couple. And I mean, I don't think they're like fully there yet, but it's like you saw that like there is such a vivid connection between two of them in this episode that was just wildly entertaining to watch. 
Yeah, I mean, this this episode basically it all but comes out and explains to you why this relationship works. Like Tom has a monologue where he explains a big piece of it, and the bitey scene is the other piece of that too, right? Where they're at this sort of outdoor kind of cocktail party, and Shiv wanders over to Tom. Uh, by the way, this is not appropriate for me to talk about, but Sarah Snook looked amazing in this episode the costuming choices and everything i mean like she's got her like pregnancy glow going on a little bit i mean this maybe the best she's ever looked on the show but it's, it's very intentional right like she's feeling herself and she's and she's seducing and she's trying to seduce tommy yeah. right they both look very attractive here uh it's nice to see to see shiv dressed up a little more sexy you know i think the attention from Matson is kind of you know maybe giving her a little bit of a boost and also getting close to Tom again, even though, uh, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't feel safe, you know, which is exciting to her. So, uh, and Tom also, you know, he looked very casual here. He's just kind of in a, in a regular polo and like, he's comfortable and not trying so hard, which is uh, sexy. And also kind of this reflection of his newfound, like who care um, to mm-hmm. <laughs> borrow, borrow a neologism from online, you know, but this new outlook where, um, he he he's kind of uh not really um performing anymore and um you know it makes sense the the clothing choices for for where they're at emotionally status wise um and yeah it's interesting to see tom not you know just uh so ingratiating and annoying like he he is um maybe this is the most confident that we've ever seen him well cuz okay. he's a social climber who got to the summit you know, yeah, and and that's and why Logan's he's... gone, and that's the person that he was always concerned about impressing. Shiv, he, you know, it fell apart. But yeah, he yeah he he, he is at the top of Everest. He's beholding, you know, all that he's uh, you know overcome, and it's like that's why he's feeling himself. That's why he's hotter now than he ever has been because it's like right because he fully realized his goal. Her, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's 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 bizarre, and and you know, I. I I talked back in season one about, um, you know, attachment styles and, and Shiv and Tom being sort of like this uh, prime example of what's called like the anxious avoidant trap with, you know, Shiv being the avoidant one and Tom being the anxious one throughout the course of the relationship. And and um, Danny, you kind of said it earlier. This is sort of like their relationship seen to fruition. You know, maybe there's there's some more in store for them. But this this is sort of what had to happen. Um you know, at least for now, there had to be some honesty and some attempts at honesty about all of this. And, um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that that getting closer to an accurate diagnosis of the issues in their relationships and, and the motivations, um, you know, has led to this sort of like organic resurrection of the relationship, um, you know, physically, emotionally. Um, I like Scafaria describing the, the bitey scene as like teens at a party, the way that there's standing in the beginning they're not quite facing each other they're sort of halfway in halfway out that you know the, the teasing the sexual gamesmanship and then um you know the totally disinhibited way that they play that game in front of all those people um like nobody's <laughs> in the room it's it's very childlike right it's very teenager um you know at a party like it felt like something i could have you know seen on euphoria you know uh, uh just that that one particular shot of them doing the biting um well in the way the camera just so in their own world yeah exactly the camera just tightens on them you know right like it like never like once you start moving in for them to play that game it never pulls back and shows you you know somebody else staring at them in the background you're totally in that totally in that world 
with them. And that scene is all about like it, it starts out in an interesting way where Shiv is trying to get trying to like prod Tom about like flirting with models or actresses at the party because that kind of turns her on too, yeah. right? But then they just get into mm-hmm. this idea of of just pain and hurt, right? Which is something that, you know, for Shiv kind of needs that in the relationship, right? Not necessarily physical pain, but I think there is a real sense that like as far apart as they've been this season, there is this kind of unstated, you know, question like did Tom have to hurt Shiv for her to respect him, you know, for her to really want him, you know, it kind of, cause it kind of feels that way. It felt like, it felt yeah. like in a way, it, yeah. I, I thought that a bit at the end of last season, that this was probably ultimately going to be a healthy thing for their relationship. I don't know about healthy, but it would be something that helped bond them together. Right. Because this is yeah. kind of, this is kind of ultimately what she's looking for. She kind of wants to be, you know, she kind of wants to be hurt a little bit by the, by, by the people that she's chasing. Well, and there's also the other kind of color to that, too, is that, like, back when she didn't respect him at all, it was because she saw him as weak and incapable of inflicting pain or doing evil. And now that he's shown, it's like, no, I can fuck you up. She's like, ooh, hello. You know, know, it's like... yeah. Because <laughs> it's like it, yeah. it, it's it's sort of fucked up to like put it in words like that, but it's also such a real thing that like so many people have that you see yes. all the time, yeah. and it's, it's and it's so well realized here. And the other part of it is that monologue that Tom gives in that scene, you know, after they're shown to have hooked up, and he just comes out and he it, this is an instance of a character just saying what has been subtext for most of the show, right? But he says it in a way that is so great because what he's describing is something that's completely venal and contemptible, but it also reads like a straightforward declaration of love, which is so perfect for this show. In this monologue, he talks about how his whole life he's been thinking about how to get money and keep money. And with Shiv, she never let him in and that he was going to be caught between her and Logan. Uh, so he did what he had to do to keep his career and his nice things and his suits and his watches and his fancy wine. Um, and if she thinks that's so shallow, why doesn't she, you know, give everything else up for love? Right. And what he's describing basically there is that his first and his truest love is money. Uh, but that doesn't have, but that doesn't have to mean that she's not a priority because she can be the same thing for him. You know, that is what she represents for him. She does represent this status. You know, if you just let me in, you know, we can both chase this thing together. You know, we can both chase the money and the power and the material wealth that is actually what drives us together. And it, and we can ha- we we can actually have it all. It's so fucked up and stupid, uh, but it's completely true to who they are. Um, I, and I and I thought it was I thought it was fair and it felt earned for the show to just have Tom describe their dynamic in that way. And it felt right that it seems like it actually brings them together because in the next scene you do see Shiv you know, start to let him in. She brings him into those sort of maneuverings that she's doing with Matson. Um, and again, just thinking about the tragic end game of this season, we're only halfway through the season, so there's plenty of time for this newfound union to shatter itself again. Well, and it's also oh, it being one of the rare that. instances of the show spelling something out, you know, making subtext text, is that it's that. It's that it's like, yeah, I just I like nice things and I like money and I'm you know I'm just I'm a I'm a rich materialistic asshole and and, and having, I'm not sorry yeah <laughs> yeah and it's just like come on you know you you know you are too you know it's like <laughs> you yeah. know and it's like 
and that's another just i mean you know gushing but i mean it's like my favorite you know bet succession never spelling it out until it's that it's just like that it just the that somebody being like i am base you know like i am not i i have no spirit yeah. i am bourgeois you know existence you know it's like i am treats you know but it's it's honest yeah yeah, yeah and it's completely and it's, it's honest dark. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to see Tom, you know, have the upper hand a little bit, which he never has had with Shiv, you know, and it rattles her. But, it, you know, it's it's very alluring to her. She's enjoying having to work for it a little bit. Like she she likes the jealousy. She likes trying to get him to focus on her again. Similar pattern that she had with Logan. You know, these kids are are messed up from their childhood and they're modeling some of their relationships, um, you know, on 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 you know the the most formative ones that they had which is the one with their with their dad um and yeah the 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 heart to heart scene uh was sort of a return to those scenes uh in the last two episodes of the first season when they're getting married um except now there's actually some some parody in the relationship um if you recall in in prenuptial when they go up to that room to chat um that's when Shiv, you know, convinces Tom to tell her about cruises so she can pass the info to Gil, um, making Tom very vulnerable despite her promising um, him that he won't get hurt. <laughs> ha ha. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, of course, in the finale of the first season, when she asks for the open marriage and he has to kind of, you know, suppress his actual feelings in this like very humiliating way. Um, so it's refreshing and almost a little unnerving to see Tom kind of like in this unbothered, relaxed state, you know, like, have we ever seen Tom, you know, relaxed? Um, you know, he's always, like I said, been performing in a sense. And, um, you know, for, for the Roys and particularly for Logan, you know, which he cops to here. And, um, you know, I, I, I like it. I like to see it. But Shiv is, she's definitely making herself vulnerable, um, getting close to Tom again, bringing him into her fold. Um, you know, when she is grieving and, um, you know, also still dealing with, with unresolved anger towards Tom, not to mention, you know, she's pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's and the thing that feels like the, the unexploded <laughs> landmine here is that yeah. Tom is going to be, I think, very hurt when he finds out that she kept this pregnancy from him. Not only that, you know, perhaps on some level that suggests that she didn't want to tell him that she didn't want it to be true but also that it kind of colors their interactions and they're coming back together over the last couple of episodes. It's going, it plants that doubt in his mind of like, did she only come back to me because she felt like she had to, because this baby means right, that in some form Logan or another, she has a baby yeah. in some form or another, they're going to be in each other's lives. Even worst case scenario, they divorce, they're going to share custody of the kid. So she is there. So there is a sense where, you know, this, this re this reunion is, sort of something that she feels like she has to do that she feels like is inevitable and it's also very neatly setting up a scenario where if all it like i doubt that the show is going to do something quite this you know nakedly simplistic but if everybody gets a bad ending um shiv's bad ending would be she falls in love with tom and tom leaves her you know because that would just completely reverse what it was because he was just like goo goo gaga over her, you know, not so just for long, the yeah. status, but like, I mean, he was genuinely in love with her at the outset in yeah, spite of himself. Sure. And she was just sort of like, who's this Midwestern boy, you know? 
And like her falling head over heels for him and having him be like, you know, whether it's like her not telling her about the pregnancy or him not knowing how it feels or just like something else, something unforeseen happening. And it's just like having her alone and pining for Tom would just be such a bleak way to end things, you know? Yeah, with her baby and yeah, her dad. Yeah, single mom pining for nope. Tom Wamsgans. Potentially no yeah, brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think again, imagining Shiv as a mother is a bleak enough ending for me. I just because I just I just I don't know the way this show is heading. I just don't see her resolving those issues. I don't see anything better for her than just becoming her mother. That kid's yeah, freshman no, class at Oberlin is going to write songs about them. Oh man. What did we skip over? We skipped over something that I wanted to mention about the scene. Oh yeah, we got we got we finally got a little bit of clarification about like the very bad time they were referring to with the with Shiv, right? Like where that came from. That the she she mentions that the, yeah. she was dealing with an ex named TK in Washington. So it's funny that there was like because we had originally perhaps theorized that it, her bad time had something to do with Nate. It, it wasn't Nate, but it was another guy in Washington. I did not theorize that. No, either. I don't think we ever thought that seriously because like because the the interaction between her and Nate didn't really seem to speak to that dark no, of a history seem... um but yeah. yeah she just yeah just a just a different hollywood uh, not hollywood no dc rose emoji fuck boy that she uh, got fucked around on by well dc is hollywood for ugly people as they say so you know <laughs> <laughs> so shiv is a dc 10 for sure um... oh well you know let's, let's talking of things we're not allowed to talk about on the show i don't even want to get into that conversation I don't, are we gonna see nate again this season did he, did he Sorry, appear on the guys, cast so... list <laughs> yeah yeah he, he's coming Oh man, I'll I'll offer an an olive branch to Nate if he comes back to Ashley Zuckerman, who we've been very mean to on this podcast. Uh, we've no, yeah, he's to, sweet. <laughs> to, to to clarify, we had frustrations with the Nate character in the first season. They were not issues, I think, with the actor. Yeah. It was really just a, a subplot that we disliked. Uh, but but we were pretty mean about that in our early podcast episodes. Well, and that, that sort of thing can bleed. And if you're the actor, you're sort of like, why does everybody hate me? And it's like, no, the character's a fuckboy, sweetie. You're okay. Nobody <laughs> hates you. you know, it's like... <laughs> fell, fell. It would be weird for him to come back and, and have another interaction with Tom. They're, they have had such uh, interesting interactions. Uh, but, you know, it's been a while. I mean, it'll make sense yeah, if, Tom. again, if the, if the ATN and the election are, as it increasingly seems to be, the end game for this season, it would make sense for Nate to reappear. He is one of the characters. It would, it would very much make up, sense yeah. for him to appear again. Uh, maybe he'll maybe he'll be oh, on oh, TV. Well, yeah. He'll be one of the analysts on a, on election night. Whatever. <laughs> I guess we yeah. just wanted to dig more a little bit into those scenes. I had both of those like Roman firing scenes. I just had s just so many thoughts about those. I mean, the the Jerry and Roman scene. I thought the the sort of design and costuming was very striking because it's so dark. She's usually wearing gray or she's wearing these like she these bold colors. I remember her, you know, in these very striking red and blue suits in the past. Maybe that tells something about her relationship with Roman sort of returning to yeah. what it originally was where there was no sort of emotional context between them whatsoever because all of that sort of sexual history between them Seems to be totally out the window. I mean, like, she's always been in this position of, like, you know, I can help you if you let me, right? And he is in this position now of just wanting validation in, like, an unwise way, just wanting his bad decisions validated and his messes to be cleaned up, and she's trying to alert him to that, but she won't sugarcoat things. Uh, and there's that, that great gesture from J. Smith Cameron where 
she quietly insists, you know, I am good at my job and the, the quavering lip. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of hurt, a lot of hurt in that scene. Um, oh yeah. yeah. And it's also like with Roman being so naked about his need for affirmation, that that is universally the one way that you will never get affirmation that, you know, it's like right. it, it, desperation is, is the way to guarantee you won't get what you want, you know? And just, I, I mean, you know, like with their history, it's just like that scene was just like physically painful at moments just because of it was, yeah. how fucked and how over that whole thing is. And that it's Roman entirely doing it to himself. You know, because she was like, look, I'm a business person. I do business. You know, it's like I'm willing to forgive and for, you know, like compartmentalize and whatever. But it's like you just yeah. fuck this whole thing up yourself. You it's know? crazy that she's not even angrier, you know, because like uh, to be perfectly honest, she probably been through some shit like this before. She's seen some shit. Yeah, like, that's true. It, that's true. And, and she, she. Yeah, that's probably yeah, the fact that it's not special is kind of what makes it hurt worse for Roman is the fact that it, she's just like, oh, it's this bullshit again. Between the, like, the firing in the episode where Logan dies, which is basically because Logan was uncomfortable with the dick pic situation, and instead of, you know, clearing it up with Roman, he says, you know, we'll just get rid of Jerry because I can't look at her anymore, um, you know, because he's disgusted or whatever. So, you know, there was that, and then I think you know, there was that very fraught scene of the two of them uh, on the boat in that room alone when Roman says, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm actually really sad. And it's like, and you could see Jerry think for like a split second, you know, should I console this little boy or, you know, but, but she's, she's angry um, and she has to protect herself and she just kind of gets up and walks out of the room. And so I think, um, some of that maybe carried over here a little bit um, well, I mean, the, into this interaction, the, even though it's insane for Roman to not understand, you know, why she why she would do that and why she would not want to have anything to do with him anymore. Well, the, the subtext of him saying you're not good at your job as a pretext to firing her is that, you know, the thing that she's just declined to do is validate him. And again, we harp on this thread, but it's very present in this season, you know, that emotional validation being the thing that he sees as her job like that's what she offers you know not all of her other skills management legal professional the thing that she is for is to validate him emotionally and to mommy him uh that's the the, yeah. the emotional Girlfriend mommy the yeah. emotional female role that he's assigned for her she declines to do it and he has no more use for her there's just so much urgency i thought in you know what jerry says in that scene and that's where i really felt these sort of you know the the tragic wheels like in motion you know as she is talking about you know tech will wash you away that language of just like a deluge yeah. right of you know there being things that you can do that you actually can't take back you know that you could actually make a mistake that you could not recover from and this is actually you know and that what roman does in this episode like this is actually the only chance the best chance he's going to have you know to actually make something of himself and to actually make the right decisions and that if he screws this up, there will not be a way to come back from it because um, they could actually destroy the company. And uh, yeah, thinking about where the next few episodes and the election are going to take us, uh, I think that's in the cards. I think uh, I think a real catastrophe is, is in the offing. 
Yeah. I mean, and all of those things that, you know, like just to, you know, put a pin on that with this, you know, like with, uh, with Roman is that all of those, like the desire for affirmation, the lack of understanding of permanent, you know, things being permanent all derives from the generational wealth thing. It's like, you know, when you have the absolute power, nothing is undoable because like I have absolute, you know, and needing the affirmation yeah, Kendall committed is like, manslaughter and he got he got out of it you know they can get yeah, out of whatever they, they can they get, out, get out of yeah they, and yeah. And, and it's like when the generational wealth thing it's like the desire for affirmation it's like part of you is like deep down even if you don't you, you suppress it it's is like did i deserve this you know you know i need you to tell me that i deserve this i need you to tell yeah. me that i'm worthy of this and it's like it's, I mean, it's hard to sympathize given, you know, like how monstrous the perspective is that even generates that desire, but it is, you know, it's, it, it's, it's that, it's the curse of having all of that is yeah, it, it not points feeling to like very you deserve important. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, that the show is trying to get at that, uh, that nobody feels, whether they're conscious of it or not, you know, depending on how underneath the surface it is how much you've come to terms with it nobody who has that much deep down really feels good about it maybe some people but i think most people once you get to that point um you know it's it's uh it's hollowing it's deadening it's lonely and um you know when it's been given to you and handed to you like that which is you know different from how logan acquired his his you know his fortune and and why he i don't think ever would feel bad about having what he had um you know because he sees himself as you know the the, the bootstrap guy that that he you know he worked his way up but but for the kids who you know just been handed this stuff you know there there is something about it that i feel like uh roman especially of the three of them maybe would have the greatest ability to kind of identify that um you know, that's not a good thing for your soul. <laughs> it's just not. No. Well, he just feels that need the most deeply. And again, I think that's why he's been yeah. the sort of emotional through line of this whole season. He's the one we feel for the most intensely and the one we can chart the most clearly. Um, did you guys uh, have a jump scare reaction when you saw Logan appear at the <laughs> beginning of this episode? I was very, I was so shocked by that because we had, we had already talked about the show. It's like, oh, we're not going to see Logan again. Come on. They're not, we're not going to do any flashbacks, but they found a way to surprise <laughs> but us with so it. it was so clever how they did it's it. It's yeah. very clever. I, was... I love all this stuff yeah. with, the, with the Logan footage. And especially, you know, we talked about the way that Roman is kind of depressed by the whole thing. Part of that is like the, the way that Logan's projected on that screen. He just looks like flat. He does kind of look like the corpse that Roman accidentally saw that Connor sent to him in the last episode. And I, and I especially love the final touch of, uh, you know, Kendall bringing Logan in to do a weird rehearsed double act with him. And it ending with him saying, I love you, dad. And Logan just silently fading away to white because you can't edit the footage to say he loves his son back. <laughs> so wonderful it's some, it, it's some real the past ain't dead hell it ain't even past shit you know it's like it's <laughs> like sure he's dead but he's he's sticking around you know it's like he's going to loom over all three of his you know i mean now all four of his kids lives forever you know it's like right. he ain't no, going no nowhere. connor in this episode at all we didn't even see connor and Willow. i know sad yeah they're on the honeymoon states 
Well, he's got losing by 99 points in the election to fucking get ahead with, you know? It's like he's got a lot on his plate, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not just anybody can do that. Uh, Forbalism Corner, I just wanted to shout out again, Lorene Scafaria, I mean, take a bow. Probably the best non-Mylaw director that this show has had at this point. I mean, she, she's, she benefits kind of because she came on in season three when the show had kind of worked out a more expressive visual language had a much higher budget <laughs> than it had in season one right yeah um but i mean but i'm very struck looking back at you know she directed the too much birthday episode of this one and both of those episodes both of these episodes are the ones that remind me the most strongly uh of mad men and that's not a superficial comparison i mean it is a full compliment you know too much yeah. birthday brings in the sort of subjective dream space that uh that mad men often played with you know because it incorporates this conceit of Ken using the resources at his disposal to just sort of manifest his fucked up subconscious in real life with all these sort of Freudian set pieces uh, that he has built for his party. And this episode is a lot about that too. You you do enter that subjective space in a real way. I, th- I think she just approaches this show a really interesting plan for every scene. She talks about this a lot in interviews. She places a lot of uh, priority on the blocking um, you know, Jeremy Strong yeah. particularly sings her praises in interviews. He loves working with her. She, I think she approaches the show as someone who just like loves these characters. And you know, the the scri- she's a fan. The, yeah. yeah, the script does all the work of you know building in all that tension, all that ambiguity around them. Uh, but she she really understands them, and she uh, she fought for the inclusion of that final scene with uh, with Kendall in the waves. Um, which is, uh, I know uh, a lot of fans of the show. They love the they love the water motif. They love Kendall and water. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, and I th- and I think it works. I think it's a I think it's a beautiful sort of pillow for this episode to rest on. Absolutely. Yeah, she's terrific. Yeah. Something else too uh, in the blocking that I noticed with Shiv and Tom was that she put them in front of reflective surfaces a lot. Like in the initial room when when Shiv is crying and and they're embracing. There's uh, like a a mirror there, and you see Tom like his, or i think it's uh i don't know if it's a mirror if it's, it's his shadow on the wall actually um and then in you know in that hotel room there's that uh you know it, it's like glass paneled um you know i thought it was interesting just you know that the duality of the toms and 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 the, the the different one that we're seeing now um you know she's very intentional she clearly understands the show and the characters and the way she talks about it is uh you know like a super fan it's very nice <laughs> And the other piece of blocking that I noticed in, uh, well, she talked about this in, in an interview. I think I think it was her TV Guide interview, but she she came up with that bit of Kendall taking Shiv's seat in that opening scene where he sits down and she has to pick up her phone and great, move to yeah. the end of the table. But that gets you that other great shot uh, where she's now sitting at the oh, head yeah. of the table. Um, and that was the thing that had me thinking of Mad Men, actually, because it's like the Don Draper shot, too, with, with, with yeah. Shiv's back to the yeah. camera. And it's, exactly. also, and it's also the shot of, of yeah. Logan's back to the camera from the opening credits. From the opening credits, yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk real quick about uh Carl's lighting up Kendall? Because oh love yeah, that so much. Yes. Well, state. I mean, look, you cannot discuss Succession without discussing the god David Rashi and with you know paying full fucking tribute because that man is a. I mean, especially this season. Legend. This has been oh, amazing. It's the season yeah. of Carl, as has been said yeah. on the social medias and no, elsewhere. No question for me. Season yeah. of Carl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I love him. I loved this. This conversation so needed to happen. You know, <laughs> just I took so much shit from your dad for decades. You think that you're going to come in and fuck this up for me now? You know, it was great. Um, 
just to just see see Kendall red like that. Um, you know, of course he's like he's in a manic state, so he's not really um, you know, impacted by it too much. And it's funny how he kind of uh <laughs> he, at the end of his speech, he's like, and our you know our world renowned CFO Carl Mueller, everybody, and he stands up. And <laughs> they kind of they kind of like pointed at each other, like, hey, you know, like we didn't just have this like huge blowout <laughs> where I said you have you may have uh my dick in your hand, but yours is also in my hand, so. <laughs> But that's business. That's business, man. Yep. One second you're yep. talking about squeezing somebody's dick off, and then the next one you're being all <laughs> fucking collegial <laughs> and shit in front of everybody with that big ass fake smile. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh man, God, David Rash is so fucking good, man. That guy, he's oh. so funny. Oh my he's god, he's so funny. I love him. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I that mean, he's I adore just... Peter Friedman, but 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 yeah. No, Carl he's has, he's has a gotten... god too. It, the two just... the two of them together, it's like. <laughs> this synergy it's yeah. like these these old guys with this olympian old guy just evil energy and it's like those two guys are having so much like they're just having a blast <laughs> yeah it's like you were talking about in the beginning how it's like you can see so many different acting styles so many unbelievable mm-hmm. performances and they're not even necessarily the first tier ones you know it's at we're almost at hour two and we just got to these two and we could talk about them for you know another yeah. 20 minutes the classic, you know, come off the bench, throw a couple elbows, hit a couple threes, win you a playoff series. You know, that's Peter Friedman and David Rashi. Yeah, it's like. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Rashi getting that scene with Jeremy Strong. I mean, like, that's one of those things where, again, the succession bench is so deep. You don't even realize watching oh, yeah. it that yeah. it's like, wow, this is a clash of the yeah. titans, like a generational clash of like two amazing actors that have never really squared off in this way before. And Rashi just yeah. She filmed it great too. Yeah, he she, she he looks so much bigger than strong, and it's just the yeah, very hard <laughs> fluorescent lighting in that backstage area that makes mm-hmm. makes it makes Carl look much different than we've seen him before. Like his face has a different cast, a different character to it mm-hmm. because this is does, we are yeah. literally seeing More Carl brutal. in a different light. Right? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like he because yeah. he's saying like, look, I was your dad's flunky because you know that he was your dad, but I'm not your flunky, and I'm not. You know, he has yeah. it has this real like you little shit tone to it, and the way that he's gesturing mm-hmm. with his phone in his hand and his middle oh, finger, I love yes. that. It's such a rich every dad last detail. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but in the but by the end of that scene, right? You know, like that that thing where they point to each other on the stage. Kendall kind of gets the better of that exchange because he goes ahead and does what he was bit, gonna yeah. do anyway. And Carl, he knows which side his bread is buttered on, and also he knows a winner when he sees one. He knows that this play worked and so in the green room in the backstage yeah. he's going you know what this guy's special i know special that's a that's that's so funny fantastic. i know special yeah because <laughs> yeah, it's like because so he's funny. a business guy and it's like it's business and he did a good business thing and as a good businessman he recognizes a good business thing yeah, yeah all carl cares about right now is getting his bag and getting out you know doesn't matter yep yeah I'd keep an eye on that, though. Yeah, I mean, if the regulators come knocking, I don't expect Carl to be, you know, last man standing going down with the ship. You know, he's uh, he'll, he'll be quick to point the <laughs> finger, I think, if he sees the opportunity. Yeah, he's getting he's getting some good witness protection if it all comes down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just scrolling through other odd details and notes. Uh, script for this episode by Georgia Pritchett and Will Arbery. Uh, Will Arbery joined the show this season, I think, as a producer and writer. And he's a playwright who wrote a play called Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which starred Succession Zone, Zoe Winters. Oh, cool. Interesting. Zoe Winters being Carrie for 
also right. on that. Right. Th- probably okay. we we may have seen the last Completely of her on the show, but uh, but a great scene stealer on, on Succession. And yeah, uh, yeah and Kate... she took kind of a turn because I was expecting her to be more of a survivor than she ended up being. But it's like that's another great point, which is like you never know. Like you can assume somebody's got it, but then at 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 the yeah. key moment they don't, and it's like that's just how shit happens. Yeah. Well, the relationship yeah. was just too contingent on, you know, her Logan being around to keep her there. You know, you got to yeah. get it in writing. Yeah. Got to get it in writing. She didn't get it in writing. Yeah. She didn't cement her her, right. her status at the company. Rookie mistake. She was close, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> Flew too close to the sun. She was holding out for the wife spot. Just like get it an executive role or something. Come on. It, yeah. And then Haima Boss comes back and she's like, no, 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 no. You're not getting the wife <laughs> spot. It's like, I fucking, I played my cards <laughs> just right. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was. I, I still think about that scene. My God, um, yeah, talk about take a like, taxi like, to the subway. Clutch I mean, play, what yeah. Oh, <laughs> God damn! <laughs> like that was legendary. Yeah. yeah. Are we gonna see Marsha again? Probably not, right? Well, we'll you don't see. Need I mean, to again, I have. That. Again, she I have. Won. I have a. Vi- yeah. I have a very vague notion of where the plot is going, but I don't know. I mean, like. We just find out that the season that the series finale is going to be an hour and a half long, so they've got times for all kinds of curtain calls and cameos mm-hmm. and stuff. We had talked briefly, Gabby and I, about um, parallels for Roman's impulsive firing of Joy and uh, the problems that Jerry says that presents uh, analogs for this character. You know, you could think of Amy Pascal getting fired after the Sony hack, but the character seems more similar to Kathleen Kennedy in the way that she's said to have responsibility for a blockbuster slate. I really mainly immediately thought of the Disney War comparison, Disney War being a book that's uh, returned to a lot on the show, and uh, Michael Eisner kind of forcing out Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, did not directly firing him, but sort of making his position untenable there. And uh, that triggered this very incredibly tedious legal battle over these obscene bonus Bonuses. payments that were owed to him in his contract. Uh, so there, so maybe there's a situation like that there. I mean, Jerry's also alluding to just Hollywood business politics and Joy having a lot of connections. And there's just another thread there about Roman not really understanding or caring about the Hollywood culture. You know, oh, the values are great, I think he says, right? Like, I love the values, of course. Like his contempt for, for Hollywood and for L.A. And he calls it a ruthlessly segregated city that you built on this fault line. And he sort of has this sneer on his face when he's in the... Uh, uh, um on the little cart, you know, being driven through the lot, um, looking at the, you know, looking at the sets and, and looking kind of bitter. Um, yeah. But it, it's nice to get a glimpse of the Waystar Studio stuff and the LA stuff. You know, we have yeah, it. Yeah, no. This is so a nice far. glimpse this season. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at all I the do movie enjoy shit. it. And all the movie shit. Like, um, there's this, uh, I saw a couple of the posters, like, that they're, we're outside the studio right before the investor day. You just get like a brief glimpse of them. And it's like dark moon girl zero. <laughs> Those are the two that I saw. What are the just like you see it from legends like of Endgame. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. And like Doderick and friends and all that. Yeah. Doderick and friends. Doderick and yeah. friends. Yeah. Um, they give you just enough on, of a it, glimpse to see how perfect the joke is without ever needing to provide more right. depth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Also reminding people who Dodrick is for those who forgot. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real yeah, specific a lot of, a bit lot of succession. Of I have forgotten. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, I I forgive people for forgetting. Yeah, Dodrick being the you know the, the Mickey the Mouse figure, Waystar mascot. That, yeah. Or Goofy. That Greg yeah, yeah, yeah. wore Goofy. Okay. Yeah, Gr- Goofy. Uh, Greg wore the costume 
in the first episode and you know puked out of the eye holes that was that was Dodrick. <laughs> oh and the last bit about tom uh doing his presentation for for atn citizens i was just like we still don't know what atn <laughs> citizens is like they like this is something that goes all the way back to lifeboats where Ken says that ATN Citizens is a lifeboat. I'm like, what the hell it's is ATN boat, Citizens? Yeah. I thought they would have explained it by now. I guess I always assumed it was like Fox Nation, like it That's was like true. their streaming service or something like that. But they never explained what it is. Probably, he, yeah. They refer to it a lot, and I'm just, I, I'm still not really clear on what it actually is. But I thought it was very funny that Tom is like rehearsing his speech, and it's just one line that he keeps repeating. It's just like, you're an ATN Citizen. You're an ATN Citizen. <laughs> he has to rehearse that piece of it. He's... <laughs> no, yeah, and it's he, again he's just hotter in this episode. But he still has his moments. <laughs> well, because there's still that still, fundamental still Tom Wamsgan's like fucking flop sweat underneath, you know. Yes. Even the <laughs> game confidence or the victory. It's like there's always that insecurity within. And his is always just yeah. like he hates public speaking or well, and, like just hates he all that public. It, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and as opposed yeah. to, I think, it's not natural. again, as we've talked about how. Kendall sort of comes by his owning of the company's sort of reactionary bent honestly. Uh, Tom is just kind of a replacement level suit. Like he has this position he got at ATN yeah. through his wife's maneuvering, but he's never implied to have any particular affinity for the business. He just like shows up at ATN. It's like, oh, I'm here to do cost cutting. You know, like he came from Parks. He's just like a replacement level flunky. Um, he, he, he never he, he never demonstrates money, yeah. that he like belongs there or like particularly wants that job. He just wants a big job. Well, and that's the nepotism point. It's like you can be completely replacement level, but you can be elevated beyond your deserved station through connections. Any other stray thoughts, notes? We're running long. Uh, anybody have uh, any other favorite lines? Any other favorite Kendall lines? This was like this was the whole Kendall highlight reel in this episode was. Oh yeah, we didn't. Was go, unbelievable. You, we can just shoot those out because you you wrote some of them. Down. I just I just wrote a bunch um, down. The part I like, where he says infinite brain. I like infinite <laughs> infinite brain box. <laughs> one of my favorites yeah um ca calling him and roman uh two young turks is <laughs> that's the amazing thing about the way that kendall talks he just like babbles and stutters and then just a gem escapes you know and yeah. it's like almost too quick to remember because like i miss them but like but then but then you know it's like another one will hit me and it's like oh yeah the one i mean the one that was like the closest thing to being sort of like a heavy handed one, but they still nailed it right. There was, it's enough to make you lose your faith in capitalism. Like you could just say anything. And it's like, that's one of those ones where it's like, fuck, you didn't have to go that hard. <laughs> you know, <it's> like... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, like... yeah. No, you're right. Cause like when he starts that speech, he, he's like mumbling that big shoes line over and over again. And he sounds stupid, but then something happens and he just like yeah he takes off he just he finds his groove fat, yeah, yeah, yeah. i can see everything yeah he, he <laughs> yeah. really yeah he can tap in he can tap into that swag he does you know you're right brendan like he has this swag and this juice you know even if it's uh you know some of it pathologically induced that 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 i, I the other two just don't have yeah, I don't know that, that we've ever yeah. seen him really unlock it before. I think it's it just has everything to do with the specific context. He kind of has sympathy on his side. Yeah. And he's just found a product that, you know, accidentally or not, he, he just kind of believes in. Yeah. He's not really mired in grief in the same way the other two are, you know. Um, I think, uh, if anything, he pre-grieved, you know, to use, to use Roman's term. Yeah, I for think. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even the tear in his eye, you know, at the end. When he's doing the, you know, talking to to Logan's picture 
um, on the screen, it, it seemed fake. Um, didn't seem like he actually was really crying for Logan. It seemed like it was part of the performance. All right, folks. Uh, should we leave it there? Danny, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. I want you again, uh, being, a, a day, being a day one fly guy with us coming back to jo- <laughs> to see us through to the end. Uh, it means a lot. It's, 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 it's great to see you. Great to talk yeah. to you. Thanks, man. I always love being here with you. I love both of you. Thank yeah. you, brother. And we'll be back next week to talk about episode seven, Tailgate Party, the election party. Um, I'm not clear. We're not, we're not clear if this is actually, I don't think this is the election episode. It's like a pre-election party. Something like that. I guess because everybody has to be Something. on TV talking about numbers the following night for their yeah. pre-election <laughs> party. Mixer. We'll see what happens. Uh, all right. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again to Danny. Thanks to Gabby and to our producer, Dan Black. Uh, if you're enjoying the Roycast, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice. You can also show your support with a contribution via the square link in our bio or just by spreading the good word about the podcast. We'll be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession's final season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. experience you'll ever know yes it's the saddest experience you'll ever know because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do one is the loneliest number that you'll ever know Number.